In the May 1965 issue of Housekeeping Monthly, the following advice column uh, was written to women entitled The Good Wife's Guide. Here's what was written. Advice to women. 1965, this is not coming from me. (laughs) Plan ahead, even the night before, to have a delicious dinner ready when your husband gets home from work. (laughs) This is a way of letting him know that you've been thinking about him and are concerned with his needs. Prepare yourself, put on some makeup, put a ribbon in your hair and be fresh looking. He's been with a lot of work-weary people. Prepare the children, take a few minutes to wash them up, brush their hair, and change their clothes if needed. Remember, they are little treasures and he would like to see them playing the part. (laughs) Have a cool or warm drink for him and arrange his pillow and take off his shoes. Over the cooler months, you should prepare and light a fire for him to unwind by. After all, catering to his comfort will bring you immense satisfaction. Let him talk first. Remember that his topics of conversation are more important than yours. Never complain if he comes home late or goes out to dinner or to entertainment without you. Instead, try to understand his world of strain and pressure and his need to relax. This seems like advice from another planet, (laughs) doesn't it? And this was 1965. When we come to Proverbs 31, uh, many of us co- have come to this passage, if you've, if you've heard it preached before or taught before, as though it's a more ancient version of this kind of advice column to wives. Uh, here's the stuff that you should do to be a good, good wife and mother. And if 19, you know, this advice was written in 1965. Imagine just knowing what you do about our own nation's history and all the changes that came in the 60s and 70s. Imagine how much different this column would have been if it had been written just five years after, five years later. 10 years later, this magazine's probably out of business. You know, 20, 30, you get to the the present day. 1965, historically speaking, is yesterday. You know, compared to back when Proverbs was, 1965 was, was not long ago at all. And culture changes so fast in regards to what's expected of a good man, what's expected of a good woman, where are we going to find our bearings for what it looks like to be a man or to be a woman and to live our lives faithfully? If we let, what, which most of us do, is we let the expectations of our culture set what we believe is, is expected of us as men or as women. And if we do that, then we, we're just going to always be trying to keep up. What was in in 1965 is out by 1970, is horribly, probably even viewed as abusive by 2017. So we're going to constantly be having to refine what, what the goal is if we let culture decide it. But when we come to God's wisdom, when we come to Proverbs 31, we see that the, the scriptures do hold out another hope that rather than constantly trying to remake ourselves in the image of whatever culture says is the right image of a man or the right image of a woman, is that as men and women both bring ourselves and are remade into the image of Jesus, is we're remade into the image of God as we see it in Christ, that we can find fullness, that we can find something that transcends the expectations that our culture has for us. 
Well, if Proverbs 31 isn't good housekeeping uh, from a couple of thousand years ago, what is it? What do we do uh, with this strange chapter of the Bible? This chapter uh, that, the, that the book of Proverbs closes with. If it's not just good housekeeping for the ancient Hebrew wife, what is it? Well, I wanna suggest that this chapter taken as a whole from verse one through 31, I think a lot of our problems come because we usually just start in verse 10, the excellent wife who can find. But if you take it back and look at verse one, the words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. This is a passage. I love that Proverbs ends. Proverbs has most of the time up till now been fatherly advice to his sons. And it ends with a mother's advice to her son and his future wife. I, wanna, I'm gonna, I think that this chapter is better thought of as leadership counsel for a man and a woman who were going to be the king and queen. This is the queen mother, the former queen, so the would-be king Lemuel, his mother, her giving him advice for what a good and righteous king does, and then also what kind of wife he ought to look for to work alongside him, to serve alongside him as his queen. So you might think of it, I don't know, if you, if you follow the news, you might've seen, I think it was this week, that Queen Elizabeth, Queen of England, uh, announced that William and Kate are gonna be her successors. So sorry, Charles, you don't get to be king. Um, but so William and Kate are gonna be her successors. This is, you can look at it as the queen mother giving advice to the young will-be king and queen about what leadership looks like, about how to lead the country that they're about to be given. Leadership. You know, leadership is a topic that some of us don't connect with very much. You know, oh, well, that's, that's for the business book section of the bookstore. That's for uh, CEOs. I don't identify with that. But did you know that truthfully, uh, the picture that the Bible paints is that every human being was created to lead. Leadership is simply using your influence, the influence that God has given you for the good of the world, for the good of your neighbors. So some of us just have uh, influence within our place of work or maybe within our church, maybe within our family, within our friend groups. But all of us are made to exert righteous and good and wise influence in the circles that God's entrusted to us. Right, Adam and Eve were created, male and female, both to influence, both to lead God's creation towards its fulfillment, wisely and righteously under God. And when Adam and Eve, when, when man and woman link arms and lead with wisdom and righteousness in the world, they seek to apply their influence, whether it be in the family or in the church or in the workplace, the world thrives and flourishes and our families thrive. And so let's look at this advice, uh, first to the king and then to the would-be queen from uh, King Lemuel's mom about what it means for men and women to exert their influence on behalf of the kingdom of God in the world. The first thing that King Lemuel's mom says to him is she encourages him, if he's going to lead others, if he's going to lead the nation, is that he has to first be able to lead himself. And so she encourages him towards self-restraint and sobriety. If you look at the way it starts, she says, what are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. 
What does this mean? Don't give your strength to women. This is not, if you remember, I think there's a scene in Rocky where Mickey tells Rocky, you know, stay away from women, Rocky. Uh, they make the legs weak. You know, this, this isn't, this isn't uh, him saying, hey, stay away from women. Focus on things that men focus on. Stay sharp. No, this is him saying, be a faithful husband. The thing that continually got Israel's kings in trouble was going after multiple women. It was trying to build for themselves a harem, trying to build themselves wives upon wives upon wives like the kings of the pagan nations had. And so he says, don't wear yourself out running after women. Focus on the, women, on the woman that you're married to. Focus on being faithful to your vows. Focus on being faithful as a husband. Not building up, filling up your own appetites or filling up your own sense of prestige by adding women and women and women. Don't run out and give all your strength away chasing women. And then it's not for kings, O Lemuel, to get drunk with wine or for rulers to take strong drink. He's saying, stay, stay sober. You're gonna have a lot of responsibility on you. You're gonna have a lot of influence beyond just yourself and the, and the desires you may have in the moment to forget the pain of this world. You have to stay sober so that you can stay wise, so that you can make good decisions for the people that are under your care. So first, she says, if you're gonna rule others, you need to first be able to be a self-disciplined man. You need to be someone whose appetites for sex or for drink or for any of the other stuff that men can run after, stay in check. So she urges self-control. And then she urges him to remember that his calling, this, this, this power and strength and authority and influence that he's been given is not for him, but it's made to be given for others. And he's to rule with mercy and justice at the forefront of his mind. This is a strange uh, one, verse six. So after, just after saying, you don't get drunk, give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. So all that wine you're not drinking, give it to those who are suffering so that they can taste a little bit of relief and escape from their pain in this world. What she's saying is essentially that you should be compassionate for those who are suffering. That you should look on the suffering of some of, of, of the poor, of those who are sick, of those who are ill, of those who are dying. And you should seek to ease their burden everywhere that you can. You should seek to make their life more pleasant anywhere you can. You should rule with mercy and compassion. And then verse eight, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Right, use your voice, use the power that you've been given to speak on behalf of those who don't have a voice. Right, there was no one in the ancient world with a louder voice than the king. Right, no one who could speak and his word come to fruition as quickly as the king. And so he's saying is this power you have, this voice that you have, yes, this privilege that you have, leverage it not just for yourself, not just so you can get ahead or that so you can build a palace for yourself, but speak up for the voiceless. Use your voice for those whose voice is never heard. Seek justice above all else. And so that's what the king is supposed to do, to seek self-control and sobriety, compassion and justice. You know, if as men, uh, we are called, we're given, we're given strength and we're called to leverage the strength that God's given us on behalf of the world. Not for ourselves, but, but for others. 
And yet it's been my uh, observation and just in dealing with men and counseling men is that most of us are deeply insecure. Most of us are deeply insecure precisely at the place where we're called to lead, right? If we're called to offer our strength both to, uh, for others to shelter them and to help them and then to advance God's kingdom in the world, most of us are deeply insecure about whether or not we have anything really to give, whether or not we have any real strength that's worth bringing, any influence that anybody would want or that would be beneficial to anyone, be it our, our wives or our children or, or anyone. And so we doubt ourselves very often and that keeps us from, from leading. It keeps us from giving our, the best of ourselves to the people who need us. And so what do most men do in the midst of our insecurity, in the midst of feeling like if we really, really were to be vulnerable and strong and, and to put ourselves out there to lead? We were, we're fearful of that. And so what, what men tend to do, and, and I think the author of Proverbs or, or King Lemuel's mama is very, very wise because she speaks directly to the two ways that masculinity can tend to go toxic, right? One of the things that men do in the midst of our insecurity is we decide to numb out. We decide to, to give ourselves to, to addiction. We give ourselves to chasing after sex or drinking too much trying just to escape for a little bit this amount of responsibility that we can sometimes feel. And so some men try to escape the world by, by self-medicating, basically, through our addictions or through other things. So that's one way that masculinity can go off the rails. The other one is a kind of counterfeit strength where we use the strength that we have only to build ourselves up. And we use it to keep other people down and to keep ourselves comfortable and happy. These are the men that become abusive husbands or abusive uh, fathers or bosses. It's a caricature of strength. It's, it's, it's strength through violence or through intimidation. And so notice what King Lemuel's mom says to this will-be king. She says, don't give in to those two things. Don't give in to addiction, chasing after women or drink. And don't give after the abusive way of leading, just using your strength for yourself, but instead use it for others. See, Israel was always supposed to be led by men, led by kings who would be both self-controlled and righteous, humble before God, and using their strength, using their privilege, using their power for the good of others. Now, if you know the story of ancient Israel, you know that king after king after king fell short of this. Just like man after man after husband after father after pastor after boss fall short of this. We all fall short of this. It's an ideal that's meant to point us to our need of a true king, to point us to a king who's ultimately righteous, ultimately self-controlled, ultimately compassionate and just. All of us fall short of this. You don't have to watch the news very long to see stories of pastors falling, politicians falling, CEOs falling. We all do it. And so she gives good sage advice uh, to the king. And then she turns and gives her attention and her advice to the, man, the, the woman that her son is gonna marry. And I've gotta, I've gotta be honest. I approached preaching on Proverbs 31 uh, with all of the excitement I approach a dental appointment. I, I, I was not excited uh, to get up here and stand and talk about this passage. And it had nothing to do with the first nine verses. Right? There, there, there are no men in this room 
who feel a deep sense of shame and insecurity because they don't measure up to being a Proverbs 31 man. There are lots of women in this room who feel shame and who feel insecurity and who feel deep deficiency because of what they've been told they have to measure up to as a Proverbs 31 woman, right? This is a passage uh, that gets uh, a lot of airtime. It's a passage that in some ways, justly, we look to to see, well, what is, what is being lifted up? What is being held up here, right? And oftentimes it's been taken, as we said earlier, as a kind of uh, an ancient way, is kind of a picture of an ancient Hebrew Stepford wife, right? That she is uh, the superwoman. She is a perfect wife, perfect loving wife to her husband. She's this uh, perfect uh, mother to her children. She runs a small business out of her home. She dyes all of her own clothing, which is, you know, that's one thing. Uh, she manages her household servants uh, with, with fairness and justice. Uh, all the people in the city sing her praises. Her children rise up and call her blessed. This, this can seem to us like an impossible standard. And so what, what kind of sense do we make of this passage? What can we take from it? Well, a couple of things to help us as we approach it. One is to remember that this passage is descriptive, not prescriptive, right? There's not a command in this passage. There's not a place where it says, women, you have to be like, you know, you have to rise while it's still yet night and prepare, prepare food for your household. There's not a place where it says, thou shalt do this. In fact, the only command in the entire chapter is verse 31, give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. So the only command in this passage is that this woman get the praise and respect that she's due. Other than that, what it offers is a, is a picture, a portrait. And it's actually a poetic, um, it's a genre of poetry that elsewhere in the Old Testament, and this is actually amazing, Elsewhere in the Old Testament, this kind of poetry is, is reserved for celebrating Israel's military leaders. So this is a poem that would be used for, for praising a general as he crushed his enemies. It's, a, it's something to memorialize a victorious commander or a great warrior. And yet here it's applied to a woman, which would have been countercultural enough, but in her normal everyday responsibilities in the home. So keep that in mind. Also keep in mind that this is a picture, I think, of a woman over a lifetime, a picture of what a woman has done. It's not a picture of what an average Israelite housewife was expected to do on a Tuesday, right? Get up early, dye your clothes, send off the ships, manage your house. This is not a picture of what a woman is doing at one time in her life. This is a picture of a lifetime. And it's a composite picture of all kinds of different women. One commentator says that it's a, a broad enough picture that every Israelite woman would have been able to find herself in it somewhere, Amen. that she would have been able to identify with it. And then furthermore, remember that this is a noble woman. This is a woman who's being prepared for queenship. So her life, when it talks about uh, she provides food for her household, verse 25, and portions for her maidens, right? these are her servants, this woman's life has more in common with Downton Abbey than it does with your life or with my life, right? This is a woman who is administering an estate, a kingdom. And so it's a big life. It's a big sphere of influence and responsibility. And so 
let's not hold ourselves uh, against this, this incredibly high standard of all that she seems to be doing because she had servants, which helps. Interestingly enough, this word uh, that's used to start, uh, an excellent wife who can find, uh, really the Hebrew, uh, it can be translated excellent wife. It's more often translated uh, valiant woman. This is a valiant woman, a noble woman. And you know who the only other woman, other than this valiant woman, to whom this, this two word Hebrew phrase is applied to in the Bible, the only other woman who gets this title is Ruth. Right, if you've been with us a while, you know we just got, got through preaching Ruth. What do we know about Ruth? She was a foreigner. She was a widow. She was an alien in her country. Through most of the book of, of Ruth, she's without a husband and she's without children and she's poor. And yet she's also called a valiant woman. And so this picture of a valiant woman, we can't just take and say, well, if you wanna be a, if you wanna be a valiant woman, You've got to be a wife and a mother and you've got to stay at home and you've got to be Martha Stewart. You've got to do all that. Because on the other hand, there's this incredibly heroic, compassionate, single, childless, widowed woman who's also called a woman of valor, a woman who's to be celebrated and treasured. And so, hopefully, we can look at this, these verses and see that they, they offer us something more uh, than maybe we've been led to believe. You know, an ancient, a woman in the ancient world, a queen in the ancient world was uh, praised and valued for precisely two things, her beauty and her capacity to bear male children. That is what, if you wanted to learn how to be the most popular queen in the ancient Near East, be beautiful and pop out sons. That was, that was what was valued. What is never mentioned in Proverbs 31? Her physical appearance or any mention of sons. What's praised in this woman is her strength. It's her strength, her inner strength that's drawn from her fear of the Lord, her faithful relationship to the Lord. In her outer strength, her strength shown out through, through her teaching and through her leading and through her serving. So she's praised for her strength, with her inner strength and her outer strength. Look at verse 30, the only time her beauty is ever even mentioned. Verse 30, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Her, her faithful relationship with, with her God is what gives her inner beauty. It's what animates and, and gives life to her and makes her beautiful inside and out. I love uh, this line, verse 26. She opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. The, the two Hebrew words uh, here, it's she, uh, she opens her mouth with Torah, with the, the words of the Hebrew Bible. And kindness, hesed, is on her tongue. This is a woman who knows her God, who knows his word, and who teaches his compassion and his grace and his, his goodness. She doesn't only teach it, but she embodies it. It says that she shows her, her kindness and compassion to the poor, just as her husband was meant to show compassion to the poor. She reaches out her hand in compassion in verse 20. I love this quote from uh, Carolyn Custis James, a, a biblical scholar. She was my, the wife of my seminary president when I was in school. She wrote this, 
The greatest asset that a woman brings to her marriage is not her beauty, her charm, her feminine wiles, or even her ability to bear a child. It is her theology. It's not her beauty, it's not her charm, it's not how wonderfully she entertains or how beautifully she sets her table. It's not even her ability to to be a mom. It's her theology. It's what she believes about God, what she knows about the gospel, what she believes about the goodness of Jesus. That's That's the main thing that any of us need to know. It's the main thing that any of us pass on to the people that we influence in our lives is who we know God to be, what we know to be true about him. And so women, we, we need you. We need you not just for your beauty and your charm and all the wonderful things that you bring to our homes. We need you to know Jesus and to know him more and more and better. The church, the, there are a lot of churches that have a lot of apologizing to do. If the only thing they ever offer to women is Bible studies on, uh, on how, to, how to prepare a table or how to uh, dress your kids, or how to make smocked clothing, right? We need, we need to have pathways for women to become theologians, real, deep, and substantive theologians who can then pass on who they know God to be to their husbands, and to their children, and to their neighbors, and to their friends. We all need to know God together and to point one another to him. I love this in verse 25. It's maybe my favorite, favorite uh, verse in this this chapter. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. This is a woman who knows God so deeply, who knows his grace and his goodness and the hope that she has in him so deeply that when she thinks about all that's to come, all of the ravages of age and sickness and aging and death and everything that the future can hold, she smiles and she laughs. You know, uh, we don't know why, but we do know that women are about two times as likely to suffer from anxiety disorders as men. We don't, we don't know why, right? We, we, some of it's probably biological and hormonal. Some of it's probably social, uh, you know, social, the way we do life. But what we do know is that women are about two times as likely to deal with anxiety at a disordered level as men are. And I don't know if Lemuel's mama knew that, I don't know if it was the case back then. I have a hunch that it was looking at all that, uh, you know, this woman did. But this picture of this woman says, as, as anxious as you might be, as much as you might worry when you think about your life, when you think about your family, your children, when you think about your bank account and your home, as much as you may be tempted to worry and to fear and to disbelief and to distrust, because of the gospel, because of Jesus, because of who God is to you, you can laugh at the days to come. You can know that in the days ahead, your, your beauty will only grow, your security will only deepen in Christ, and that you can therefore laugh with joy at the days to come. You know, if, if men sometimes struggle uh, with the belief that we're, that, that we're enough, that we have anything to offer, uh, women awful str- often struggle with the fear that they're too much, uh, that if they really offer all of their gifts, all of their abilities, all of their, all of their strength, all of their uh, thoughts, all of their knowledge, that they'll be seen as being too much, that they'll be seen as being intimidating, that they'll be seen as being hard, that they'll be seen as being other words that I won't use from the pulpit, right? That we place a burden on women to have to edit themselves 
very often. This belief that, that if, they really, if they really bring their gifts and their fullness to their family, to their husband, to their church, that they're gonna be seen as being just, just too much. And I love the picture uh, of this woman and her husband is that Lemuel's mom knows that this is the kind of woman that her husband is going to need. And that if her husband is intimidated by her, he needs to get over it. Um, because he's going, to, he's going to need a woman who brings real gifts and real strength into his life. And look at verse 28. Her children rise up and call her blessed and her husband also, and he praises her. This is a marriage and a family of mutual encouragement and love. It says earlier that her husband trusts her uh, in verse 11, the heart of her husband trusts in her. This is a man who's not intimidated and it's a woman who's free to give her gifts. And so Lemuel's mom paints this picture, not just of a man and a woman that's not easily pegged in, in, in terms of cultural norms, but it's also a marriage, what one commentator calls a blessed alliance, man and woman, shoulder to shoulder, husband and wife together, exerting a redemptive kingdom influence in their responsibilities, in their, in, in their world, in their children, in their community, uh, flourishing under their care. You know, we, um, we talk a lot uh, in Christian circles about marriage, right? There's a, there's a lot of talk uh, about defending biblical marriage, right? And that's a good thing, right? The scriptures do call us. The scriptures have an incredibly high and beautiful picture of marriage. Husband and wife together, one flesh, right? Perfect intimacy, trust between one another, a man and a woman, Right? And so it's right for us to want to defend and to promote and to protect biblical marriage. But if you ever read the Bible, the idea of biblical marriage starts to feel cloudy. You start to look at the actual marriages between actual men and women in the Bible. And you go, biblical marriage? Which, which, which biblical marriage am I supposed to be trying to emulate? Is it, is it the one that Abraham had when he was told to, to wait on Sarah to get pregnant and she was gonna have kids, but instead he said, ah, I'm gonna take my, my slave woman and get her pregnant and she'll give me kids? Is it that marriage? Is it the marriage where Jacob uh, loved one sister and worked for her, got tricked by his father-in-law and ended up marrying two sisters who basically fought until they died? Is that the marriage? Is that the biblical marriage that we're supposed to be upholding? Is it David's marriage who saw another man's wife bathing on a roof and decided, oh, I like her. I'll take her, kill her husband and, and marry her. Is that the biblical marriage? And so what we find when we look at marriage in the Bible is both an incredibly high and lofty aspiration for what we should have together and what we should long for together. And yet an incredibly realistic picture of what it actually looks like when sinful men and women try to forge a life together. When we try to figure out how to be faithful to our vows and love one another, right? The best, the best marriages in this life are weak shadows of what they're meant to point us to. The perfect union between Christ and his people. The perfect union between Jesus and his bride. Right, Lemuel and his wife, I don't know, I don't, we don't know anything else about them. We don't know what their marriage ended up looking like. But I know that they fought and they argued, that they had the same struggles that we have. 
the best of our marriages is a frail shadow of what that union's meant to be like. If you've ever heard, uh, if you've ever been blessed to go to a children's musical recital, uh, you know that um, I got to go to one for my first grader uh, a little while ago. And there's all sorts of different kids. This isn't about my kid. There's lots of kids playing. And what you notice is that there's, there's, there's kids just banging away at a piano. And every once in a while, you hear a, a fraction of a tune that you recognize. You're like, wait, wait hold on. Did, did he just pull the, the, yeah, that was the Superman theme song. I recognized a little bit of that. Or, oh, wait, was that Beethoven? I think I heard in the midst of all those discordant notes, just a moment of Beethoven that came together. And all of our marriages are kindergartners pounding away at a keyboard. And every once in a while, the music comes through. Every once in a while, you hear it for what it's meant to be. You hear it for, for, for the, you see the, 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 the reality behind the shadow. And it's overwhelming and it's beautiful because there's so many moments where the notes are so discordant, where they don't make sense. And so the ultimate hope of Proverbs 31 isn't that, that we as men and we as women figure it out and we forge these perfect marriages. It's that the Lord Jesus, the true King, is building a blessed alliance with his bride and that we get to stand with him in union with him. We get to stand under him and follow his lead and that together we get to see the kingdom of God come in fullness in this world.